Welcome to the Filling the Pale podcast. My name is Greg Ashman and with me for this episode is Dr. Amanda van der Hayden, mathematics education researcher, founder of Spring Math and policy advisor, who is also involved in the New Science of Math initiative. Welcome, Amanda. Thank you. Um, thanks for agreeing to do the podcast. Really appreciate it. Um, first of all, could you uh, tell me a little bit about yourself um, and what was the journey that led to your current work and your interest in maths education, math education? Yeah, for sure. Um, thanks for having me. I'm a big fan, by the way. I want to make sure I say that out loud. I love I love your writing. It's so powerful. Oh, thank and you. you. Have such a, you have such a reach. People really read your work, which is so cool. So, uh, And you're saying the things that I agree with, which it makes it even better for the most part. Um, so uh, what got me started in math education was trying to solve, you know, a, a real problem in a real school system. So my, my history, I'm, I'm a school psychologist by training. And I trained in the 1990s when it wasn't really even called RTI yet, but it was sort of this new idea that maybe children were being identified as needing special education when in reality, they just needed better instruction. We used to call yeah. them instructional casualties, right? Yeah. And we saw all these bad things happening, like children who um, came from you know, minority backgrounds tended to be identified at higher rates as having these disabilities and specifically, learning disabilities. And then as a result, they didn't have better outcomes. So this sort of, you know, got people's attention and said, wait, what is this all about? We have to, we have to do better for these children. They still were not learning to read or be proficient in math. So I began to help build screening models that later became, you know, came to be called response to intervention to really better help kids. And in that work, I would go into schools and essentially screen the school in reading, writing, and math proficiency. And in the early days, you know, before reading first in the United States, we used to find reading problems everywhere. But as reading improved and vendors put out better products, which really has happened in my lifetime, and LD rates went down, children were learning to read, we didn't see the same growth in math. And so in about 2002, I landed in this little district in Arizona called Vail, Arizona, and did my routine and discovered, yes, in fact, you have a systemic, system-wide math problem. And the superintendent said, huh, I knew that. <laughs> I knew that. Tell me what you'd like to do about that. And I said, well, I think we need to um, first deliver intervention to everybody in a highly efficient way because we can't really tell who's at risk. There's so much risk, we can't tell who's at risk. And so I, that's where I built classified math intervention. And between 2002 and 2005, a number of really important things happened. And one is that their LD identification rate in that district went from 6% to 3.5% in one year. Wow. Their math proficiency went from middle of the pack in the state of Arizona to rank order position number one. And in all schools, they attained better than 95% proficient on the year-end test. And that was when year-end tests were sort of a new thing and very threatening. Yeah. So um, disproportionality went away. They had some trouble with that before we delivered high quality intervention to all children using the conventions of what now is called response to intervention and MTSS. Um, and anyway, that work sort of lit me on fire because the things that I did, I first of all, I had to build them all because I couldn't buy them. But I just used tactics we already knew about. These were not new ideas. These were ideas that were written about really even 1960s, 1970s, but deployed them at scale. And it was sort of remarkable and also dismaying 
right? Yeah. Because if it were so easy to do it, why are we not doing this all over the country? Which is still my obsession. And that is why I have built Spring Math. <laughs> now, there's quite a lot to unpack there, actually. Um, so just in case people listening don't know. So response to intervention, RTI, is the tiered model where you first deliver a whole class intervention. And then with the students who are still not making progress, you deliver a smaller targeted intervention to a group of them. And then your, your sort of final stage is individual intervention with the students who are still not making progress. And MTSS is a similar idea, isn't it? Multi-tiered, um, what's it, system of supports or something. But it's a similar idea that you're gradually... Exactly. Reducing, yeah. But, yes. you, but, the, but the key thing that you focused on is that actually a lot of kids need a class-wide. We, we, we might be trying to intervene with them a bit too early at the individual level, labelling them as having learning disabilities. Right. Whereas actually they need a class-wide, like they, they just haven't been taught the stuff properly. Absolutely. I mean, this is exactly what we found. So yeah. when we implemented in this little district in Arizona, we I was really interested in doing research for these children for tier three intensive individualized interventions. What would those look like? What could I discover? in research that had never been built before that might really help these children. And what I actually learned is if you went in and did something very simple, standard protocol, but you delivered it with, you know, in a high quality way over a sustained period of time, 12 minutes a day, every day, you didn't miss any days, everybody responded. We had a 98% successful response to class-wide math intervention in that district over three years, meaning only 2% of children ever looked like they required an individual intervention, let alone an eligibility evaluation. Yeah, well, that's, that's it does, it, it suggests two things. It suggests that kids are capable of more than we assume, and it suggests that we're not giving them what they they need uh, right that's the dismaying part right one of the things that's you, you're making me think of i read a recent um report i posted it on the research ed australia facebook page and it was from the hetchinger report and uh, it was um they basically they were arguing that data analysis is a waste of time for teachers um and that we're spending all this time doing data analysis looking at data from uh, what the kids are doing but we're but it's but the evidence suggests that we hardly ever do anything useful with it um, yeah. because we don't know what to do. When we find right. that there's a problem, we don't know what to do to fix the problem. I mean, have you got any thoughts on that argument, given your experience? Well, yeah. I mean, I, you know, most of my research really has been about these screening systems yeah. to find risk and then to do something about it. But, you know, the thing about, you know, assessment in schools, it's very seductive to teachers and it's very seductive to systems. Everybody feels like they're doing something, but weighing a cow doesn't make it fatter. Weighing a pig doesn't make it fatter. You know, that old expression, it's really true. And you can rapidly hit your point of diminishing returns with assessment. So the key is you want, you want just enough information to know what you need to do differently tomorrow. That's it. And, and what does it, so if you were to, describe like you said we use strategies ideas that have been around since 1960 so if we went into one of these uh, classes where yeah. the intervention is taking place what would he actually see let's get down to sort of concrete well, right. i mean greg you would love it you would love it because it's direct <laughs> instruction it is a high dosage of opportunities to respond at the right level of task difficulty in a very um 
high, high student engagement, active student engaging engagement kind of way. And there, that's really it. And so when children attain a certain level of proficiency, you increase the difficulty of the task. You give them an opportunity to try to beat their score from the day before. You're monitoring progress as a way that they can see their growth. Teachers can see the growth that they're helping their children attain in their classroom. And then that, that tells you when to advance the task difficulty. But basically, this is pretty simple stuff, which is, is again, it's like it's, it's a wonderful thing to know because you can do this in your system. But it's also simultaneously dismaying when you look at many systems that have like a 50% proficient rate. I mean, that's, that is really educational malpractice in today's day and age because what that really is saying, if we're just going to call a spade a spade, is that you have decision makers who are more committed to philosophies of pedagogy than they are to doing what will work for students, right? Yeah, and I, you sent, you've got a, a paper which I don't believe it's been, I think it's a preprint still, the science of... Oh, I always put the preprints up, yeah. but I don't put them up until they've been published. So everything on there is published. Oh, okay. So it's a, it's interesting because it talks about that and you expand on that a little bit. Um, you talk about um, the evidence-based approach versus the philosophy-based approach. So what would you suggest uh, characterizes the two? Well, I think a philosophy-based approach is, a, is, and I say this to teachers all the time, you know, respectfully, you cannot just do what you like or what you're most familiar with or what a professor in your training program told you is their favorite thing. You really have to be about, as a teacher, you are a steward of a limited opportunity to either, either establish a proficiency and understanding for a student or not. And if you miss the mark, that will haunt that child in their trajectory, especially in math, for the rest of their K-12 career and beyond. And so it's, you know, you cannot take that stewardship responsibility lightly. And to me, that says that you really have to be about saying, I'm going to try to use something that I think will work. And it's not a bad idea to start with something that you learned in your training program is, is promoted by professors that, you know, in the school that you graduated from. However, you should be watching to see that students in front of you are benefiting as intended. And if they are not, you cannot say there must be something wrong with this learner. Your logical conclusion should be there must be something wrong with this instruction because learning is the most predictable outcome of highly effective instruction, period. So when learning is not happening, it's because you're not teaching it right. <laughs> it's really that it's a low inference endeavor. <laughs> But there is a lot of resistance to that. Um, so I don't know what you, you think of when you think about philosophy based, but I, you, you read lots of people that, that they um, don't like the idea of telling um, students things. They'll put that, cast that as a pejorative. They will uh, criticise what they call rote knowledge. Um, and sometimes to the point where it seems like uh, the, the, they can put up with the fact that kids have procedural disfluency because that's not really that important anyway and they're focused on some deeper um almost kind of in my mind mystical you was gonna <laughs> say magical thinking unmeasurable <laughs> yeah. i don't have to be accountable to it as a teacher isn't that it that is interesting that could be a little seductive perhaps yeah yeah right yeah um so 
you started these interventions, the, the, the class-wide interventions, um, and then the grade-wide interventions, and you got involved in randomised control trials of those interventions. Could you tell us uh, a little bit about that, what, how, how, how that started, uh, what you found, what, what the results were, and what the effect of that was? Right. I mean, I love good research and I love methodology of all types, you know, and at that time I felt we really were ready to conduct on RCT. We had not done it. No one had really done it. And it felt like, you know, we had studied it in many other ways. And so um, I wanted to do that because really I was very interested in being able to quantify the the cost benefit of that tactic. And I was also very interested in studying some of the implementation metrics that we were collecting to see did that moderate intervention effects and or, or mediate intervention effects. Um, and I was also um, really interested in being able to quantify uh, risk reduction metrics that are pretty common in medicine, like never needed to treat. I just thought yeah. that was really an interesting way to think about intervention, academic intervention, and, and what never needed to treat is, if you're not familiar with that metric, is, you know, it's a, it's a risk reduction metric that you can only compute when you have had random assignments. You've got to, you've got to have an RCT to be able to do it. And it's really common among, like, pharmaceutical trials where, you know, like, if you take a blood pressure drug, then they can quantify how many patients do they have to give this blood pressure drug to before they prevent heart attack or something like that, some negative outcome. Well, in in academics, we have very similar kind of deadly outcomes, academic failure, dropout. And so I wanted to know, like, how many people do you have to give it to, something like class-wide math intervention, to prevent one failure of the year-end test? And the number seven in the study that, that we did. So in a class of 28 kids, if you give class-wide math intervention to cost you 12 to 15 minutes per day, yeah. then you will present, you will prevent four failures on the year-end test that otherwise would have happened. Uh, and you really, you know, once you know that, yeah. then you can really think about well, what is the cost of that? I mean, like, you know, our tool is cheap. We're, we're somewhere between seven and $10 a kid. So, you know, it's, it's just, not that expensive. I could even fundraise around that, right? It costs you $50 to prevent a failure or whatever the number is. Um, And we don't think about, we don't think about education in that way, but, but we should, right? Yeah. We think about medicine that way all the time, but then people come up and say, ah, yeah, but medicine and education, they're very different. Education is far more complicated than medicine. I mean, can you imagine? But but this is what people say, isn't it? Um, And and also, you're, you've hit on a what I think is a very important point there. It's not very expensive to do this right. And a lot of, uh, you know, a lot of the sexy stuff in education is about, like, spending money on iPads or that sort right. of thing. Yeah, spending lots of money on something. Um, it's, Hasn't that been interesting? Like, the pandemic really gave us this unexpected window into how well that really works, Right. And it's funny because that lesson was lost on many of our leaders. I know I was on a panel that AASA, um, that's an uh, American superintendents group in the U.S., um, hosted. And uh, I was talking about classified intervention as a way to repair learning loss because it is so efficient. I mean, for the same investment of 12 to 15 minutes in a day, a teacher touches every child in the class. And truly, in my world, the teacher is the heart and soul of the change model. 
I mean, there's no, that's the, we say this all the time. I say this to my people all the time, the teacher and the student interaction, that's the center of the universe and everything we do. And everything that I build is about enabling the teacher to teach more effectively, making it easier, making the work less complex, making it more efficient. So it, it costs the teacher less to get it done. I mean, that's really, to me, how you move learning. But the lesson of, you know, not just thinking you can buy a bunch of technology and have that automatically translate to learning gains. You know, we saw that happen live in the pandemic, but like I'm on this panel after talking about learning loss and one of the superintendents who was uh, serving on this panel with me, I did my part and basically said, you know, simple 12, 15 minutes a day, it's old school, it's not sexy, but it really works. And then they asked her, what are you going to do with all this extra money that you're getting from the feds? And she said, oh, I'm going to finally deliver a device for every kid. Mm. <laughs> it's like, oh, my gosh, how do you how is that your takeaway? Right. Yeah. Um, and I think what, what's interesting with the efficiency. So I, I was reading about the class word and, and it, it's interesting to me. So just briefly and correct me if I get this wrong, but just explaining for people listening. Uh, the, the teacher will model a worked example of how to do a particular type of problem. And then the students will work in pairs with one student working on a problem and the other being the helper for about three minutes. And then yep. they swap over and the other student works on the problem and they swap roles and the other is the helper. And then you sort of repeat that process. Is that right? Have I captured that? That's it. Yeah, yeah. exactly. Um, so, uh, the way we would teach maths at my place is slightly different in that we wouldn't have the paired thing. We we do it all on mini whiteboards, and so the teacher would model, and then and the kids would too. the kids would hold up their mini whiteboards with with their yeah. their go, and we just repeat and go over. But what I find is it's very simple. It's quite low tech. It's it's you can do it with large classes. You don't need small class sizes, right. uh, and it's very efficient. Yeah. And there's been a big. Um, debate in Australia, uh, which I've got myself involved in over the Australian curriculum for maths. Mm -hmm. And uh, it seems as if like, there's lots of the way I would characterize it, they've written lots of activities into the curriculum, lots of sort of investigative style activities that they want students to do. Technically, they're elaborations, so you don't technically have to do them, but the whole thing pushes you in this particular direction. And certainly in the first draft that came out last year, they then pushed back um, a lot of content. So they, they pushed back learning uh, multiplication facts by a year. They pushed back linear algebra by a year. Um, and I think my view, and I don't know what your thoughts on, on this are, so you, you can maybe comment, is part of this is if you've got inefficient teaching methods, it's very, you, you can't get to this stuff and you can't teach these basics um, in an efficient way. And you've got all these investigations you've got to do. It leads to the curriculum being watered down and things being pushed back because we just, we just can't get through it at the, at the same rate. That's right. Those are not benign choices. I mean, it's like you're trying to make a certain overall time in a marathon and you lose way too much time in your first several miles. You'll never make it up in the second half. Right. Yeah. And this is not a benign mistake. This has terrible consequences for students. You know, one of one of the uh, sort of new person I met in the last year, we were on a panel together. And I'm not sure how to say her last name correctly, but Anna Stoke in Canada, you might know her. Yes. Um, yeah, the, the, I mean, the, the Wise Maths Initiative, is that 
she just, yeah, and she, she just got sort of um, fired up because she is a math professor yep. in higher ed, and she was noticing all these kids are arriving and they can't do math. And they graduated from high school successfully, but they really can't function in math. You know, it's interesting that it's not, it's not a benign mistake. This, this catches up eventually with children later. They may be out of K-12, but what we might find is they really are less prepared to thrive in STEM careers and compete. So this is not a, but it's not a consequence-free choice to water, as you say, water down. And I agree with you. I think, I think there's a sense, and this used to come up in early intervention, believe it or not, in the 90s, there was an idea that if you intervene directly with a little child on talking or social skills, that you were, de you were depriving that child of, of the developmental opportunity to naturally mature their way into or develop their way into uh, and a, a more adaptive way of responding. Um, and so it was discouraged, right? And what we have learned just overwhelmingly is that's a huge mistake. Children do not just outgrow those kinds of problems. And so they really require early intervention. And there are ways to do that that are really respectful and child-centered, um, respectful of the child, I mean, and the family. And, and engaging to the child and not harmful to the child. And it's interesting to me that in, in math, I see the same thing you are kind of alluding to, which is that if we put all of this energy and just to developing this really interesting lesson, well, I think that's about impressing the other adults in the room. Because yeah. I'll say to teachers all the time, you know, what's, you know what's really interesting and engaging in math? And they'll go, what? And I'll say, when you can do the math. Yes. You know, Absolutely. if you've ever been the kid in the room who can't do the math, it doesn't matter how charming and eloquent your beautiful lesson is that when you presented to your math teacher colleagues, they thought was really cool. Right. Yeah. And I know there's a there's a lesson online that you can find. I can, maybe I can send it to you, but I use it when I train. And it's a teacher who has filmed herself teaching the concept of multi-digit multiplication. And she says, you know, teaching the standard algorithm basically is bad. And here's a better way to teach it. And it is this very complicated um, process that's like a giant trick. Actually, it's like a series of tricks. And I don't understand how that yeah. is set forth as establishing better understanding of place value than the actual algorithm. No. So, well, uh, there's yeah and you can do the there's a guy in australia steve norton uh who you might I, he seems to have disappeared off the radar i i, he, anyway. I don't know him yeah no but he he was around a few years ago and he does it the standard algorithm he starts with bundles of um manipulatives in the places of the numbers and gradually develops it into the and it, it the this um i think as well when you look at the, what the what drives curriculum decisions this reluctance to intervene that you've talked about this hesitancy to instruct um actually skews the curriculum because it then pushes people towards things that kids can do without much right. instruction so in the australian curriculum draft we've got like lots of things where you know kids are asked to tessellate tiles um and again it, it's not quite clear why um and that <laughs> Do you, you know the late Grant Wiggins? Are you familiar with Grant Wiggins? He um, He's someone I disagreed with on a number of things. We used to go back and forth on his blog about authentic tasks and this sort of thing. But one okay. of the things that he developed with Jay McTie, which is very powerful, is the idea of backward design. So you start with your objective. Mean, it seems, sounds obvious. Right. But you start with your objectives, what you want the students to learn, and then you select your tasks 
that you want them to do in order to get to that objective. Whereas I think okay. a lot of the time in maths education, we just think this is a cool task. Kids should be tessellating tiles. Yeah, right. I agree with you, right? It's it's really about, again, it's it's impressing the other adults in the room who already know how to do math. I yeah. mean, that's one of the great things. Like, you know, you hear people like Kirshner when he, t- he writes about minimally guided instruction. Yeah. That's the problem is that those, those methods are assuming that children learn like experts. Well, children don't learn like experts, right? They're novice learners and novice learners need explicit instruction. And and explicit instruction just needs a makeover. We already did it once. We used to call it direct instruction. Absolutely. <laughs> little D, little I, right? Now we, you call it both in your book, which is good. Um, <laughs> now we call it explicit instruction, but it's still, it's, it's so misunderstood by the other side, okay? Like they believe it's this heavy handed, you're telling the solutions to children. What you're really doing is you're making it, you're using um, excellent engineering of a lesson to help the student make the correct discrimination. That's the jargon way of saying it, right? With the fewest errors and the least frustration possible on the part of the student. And it's interesting because the, the I'll say the other side, <laughs> um, they're often you know, making a claim that things that my side will advocate for being kind of an evidence-based approach, like timing, that the, yeah. you know, just irrevocably causes children to fall apart and have anxiety. You'll traumatize well, think, them, Amanda, you'll traumatize right? them. But I think really poor <laughs> instruction causes yeah. children to have anxiety and fall apart. And it's so interesting that you don't hear the very same people say that something like productive struggle yeah. or inquiry-based learning could potentially cause children to have anxiety. Guess I would have had anxiety yeah. in that, you know, you could give me anxiety right now if you tried to help, you know, teach me to do something I don't want to learn and you made me do it and I had to sit in your classroom and do it and you made me engage in this process of productive struggle. Yeah, I, absolutely. Uh, I, I don't know if you're aware, my uh, PhD research has been on the productive struggle idea um, oh, with yeah. yeah yeah with science uh, middle it's a very mathsy bit of science calculating the efficiency of devices light globes and things like that and mm-hmm. I, I ran um, a so I, I my contention was that most of the studies that uh, have shown an effect for productive struggle there's been a problem with the design of the study. Um, yeah. So, and I won't go in, I won't bore you with the details of it. But what I did is I had, um, I randomly assigned students to two conditions. The first condition, they read a filler task. The second condition solved these, tried to and failed because it's productive struggle, solve these uh, energy efficiency problems. Then, I, and I did it in a lecture theater. So, then at that point, I could teach all of them at the same time. I could give them explicit teaching because the productive struggle idea, or depending on exactly how you characterize it, uh, what do they call it? What's Manu Kapoor call it? Um, oh, anyway, but uh, the idea is that you give the, they struggle first, but then you do give explicit teaching. So so right. we, yeah. we had that, but they all had the same explicit teaching, which is what makes my research slightly different to other ones because they were all in the room together getting the same explicit teaching and then it flipped so the ones that did the problem solving at the start did the reading filler task the ones that did the reading filler task did the problem solving at the start oh, so i had so i had explicit teaching before problem solving versus right. problem solving before explicit teaching well i know and, i mean we know what you found right yeah yeah absolutely i mean it's what i would have predicted and it was quite um marked i mean i when you correct papers 
um, normally you, you, you sense a difference or it was actually quite marked when you looked at what the kids could do from the right. two conditions. Um, and then I and got it, like, I wonder how they felt about it. You know, yeah, what, and I didn't did ask they, did that. You have, no, yeah, that no. would have been interesting. It right? would have been interesting. It would have been interesting. Yeah. But And it's still a reasonably small effect size when you sort of work, do, do all the calculations and stuff. But when you actually yeah. looked at what they could do, um, it, it did, as a teacher, it felt quite quite different. But, um, yeah, that idea of um, trying to motivate them by giving them hard things to do that they're going to struggle at, I do think is quite misconceived and well, it's, uh, it's poorly aligned with the research literature on how children learn I mean what what I will often say especially to people who are more reasonable and they're trying to do good work but they really just believe there's something to productive struggle the thing that I will concede is well maybe it it would be a good generalization opportunity but it would not really for me it would not be something that I would engineer in a lesson to occur early in a new skill yeah. understanding right I would engineer that productive struggle opportunity to occur after children can respond somewhat, first of all, accurately, but also effortlessly. And, you know, fluency is a gift that you give children because it makes the work more engaging. They are more interested in practicing. It's less aversive. It's less painful. It's, it's less anxiety provoking. Um, I mean, we can all relate to this, right? Because if you ever tried to learn anything, musical instrument, foreign language, you know, how to read a map, how to code, how to, you know, become a runner, as you gain some proficiency, some fluency, which is measurable, the whole thing becomes less painful. And you start to get this beautiful efficiency in learning where children will demonstrate gains in understanding that you did not have to directly teach, which is called generalization. Yeah. So, yeah, it's interesting. I just don't think most teachers are really trained to understand the beautiful science of instruction. No. Yeah. You talked about the other side and you talked about them saying, oh, you just want to tell uh, kids things. And you just, but another response, particularly you mentioned Kirshner Sweller Clark's minimal guidance paper. One of the responses, whenever I post that, I get people say, oh, yeah, but my inquiry learning is not minimal guide, minimally guided. There is right. lots of guidance in my inquiry. Yeah, yeah. Oh, they say right. we even do explicit teaching. Uh, yeah. within... I was going to say when you were talking about productive struggle, I was yeah. going to say, well, they would say, yeah. oh, that's not you didn't do it right. Yeah, you know, you didn't do it right. But what's interesting about that is then you go, OK, well, tell me how to do it. Yeah. And there's a real mm, slowness to really operationalize those independent variables in yeah. ways that are transparent and can be replicated, which that is a premise of science. That's yeah. just a fundamental premise of science. So if you cannot, as a teacher, really operationally define what you mean by a tactic that you're going to use, and you can't de define it in a way that someone could watch you and say that you did it or you didn't do it, train another person to do it, then that's not operationalized enough to study, let alone know that it could work or not work it's a it's a defensive tactic isn't it it's like balanced literacy so you ask an advocate of balanced literacy what it is and they'll they'll fail to define it but then when you um uh, i know criticize balanced literacy and say we need a systematic phonics approach instead they'll say oh well balanced literacy includes that but that's um, right so yeah. it's it's a way of uh 
not re make making your ideas unfalsifiable because if you won't clearly set out what you're going to do no one can prove you wrong but well, that's right and that yeah. sounds like a very trivial um way of going about things but it's been extraordinarily successful it's been successful with literacy it's, it's maintained um bad ideas of teaching literacy for a long time that kind of a tactic shuck and jive it's a shuck and jive right yeah yeah it's yeah. a shame but you know actually you know if you go and read there's the the i have said okay well let me go read the very best studies on this or that and generally poorly designed poorly implemented studies like i think I've, I've been an associate editor i'm not anymore but i was for over 10 years for three different journals without interruption um and most of those papers it's like my gosh it's like a terrible thesis i would never like this would never survive peer review in a decent journal but and they are getting published in various outlets absolutely there's um uh, i won't name the person because they don't get a right of reply on my podcast but there's a very famous um maths education expert in the us um who recently published a paper and we threw it around online a number of us and we just couldn't understand the data like right. in the data table it just didn't make any sense and and we're so i'm missing something here i don't understand what this is saying it seems to be saying the reverse of what it says in the text and and we couldn't work it out couldn't get to the bottom of it and appeals to the authors were left unanswered so oh, that's right yeah yes yeah it's a, i mean that part is is very dismaying but i mean I, I think the 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 message to teachers needs to be you know you're responsible for the learning that does or does not happen on your watch and there are there are ways to directly know even if you believe in a tactic you want to try it okay that's fine but you should be looking to see if your children are mastering it quickly and moving on to, to new content. Like something simple like classified math intervention. And I just wanna say like my model's not the only model. Lynn Fuchs and Doug Fuchs have a model called PALS, Pure Assisted Learning Strategies, which has been you know, enormously very well-studied and very well-funded research and um, wonderful results. And I, model my process after Charlie Greenwood's fine work on class-wide peer tutoring. So these are just, they're not new ideas and they're, they're embarrassingly simple kind of tactics. So my appeal to, to teachers would be to say, if you're, you know, if you're really committed and you want to use productive struggle, great. Could you do this too? Yeah. <laughs> let's, well, yeah the, let's layer this in. Cause yours only takes 15 minutes. Yeah. Right. So, um, can we talk about some specific issues that come up a lot in math? Uh, this kind of links um, to the Science of Math initiative as well. Um, mm -hmm. So do you want, actually, do you want to just tell us a little bit about that before we get into these, these specific issues? Um, how, well, what was the origin of it and, and what's it yeah, trying to do? I mean, I don't want to say it was like collective anger. <laughs> it was almost like collective anger. You know, the thing is, there, there's lots of us who really try to do good work. And we try to really um, put our data through peer review and make our processes transparent so that others can go out and try the tactics that we study and adapt to try to get even better results for children and systems. But inevitably, we're out on the road doing that work, training systems, and we run into leaders who just say, well, okay, that's fine, but I can't do this because I disagree with it. Yeah. And, you know, I, I, I went to a state, I won't say which state, and I, I was hired as their external math consultant. 
And, um, and when I arrived, they said, well, you know, you cannot use the words direct instruction in the state. And I said, <laughs> why? I'm just so puzzled. Like, why? And she said, because we have spent years trying to get that erased from the way our teachers talk. And I said, Can I, why? <laughs> she said, because, because it doesn't work. And I said, oh, you must, I mean, it's so interesting because the leader in that state actually trained with uh, folks in, in Oregon. And so the early folks who built this, like he knew these people. It's just bizarre to me that she believed this. And she's very influential because she's one of the leaders in the state. So, you know, that all trickles down to the teachers on the front line. And so that process was miserable. And I know I went on vacation right after that. And I sat down and wrote that paper that I, that you read that's yeah. the philosophy-based versus evidence-based practices. I sent it to Robin Cotting and I said, can you help me clean this up and we'll publish it? And she said, okay, great, yes. Um, but I truly, I was, I wrote it out of anger. It was a very frustrating experience. It made me very sad because I thought about, you know, these children who happen to be educated in this state are subjected and, and deprived of certain effective tactics simply because of a handful of people's opinions, right? that are really disconsonant with the science. And so other people were having the same experiences. And we began to just sort of communicate and beyond just complaining, we said, what can we do about this? Yeah. I mean, you know, there's, there's this huge narrative, like for example, you know, you Google productive struggle and you don't find well-controlled randomized controlled trials or, you know, cause the first thing somebody like me does is say, well, let me go, this must, maybe it really works. Let me go, let me go see, you know? Yeah. And you don't find any of that, but you find hundreds of hits, which are basically documents coming from math education, telling people how to do it Yeah. and asserting that people should do it. Yeah. And that was sort of alarming to me. Like, well, how can a how can a field, you know, that's a, a mature profession, helping profession, promote practices that really have no evidence base and might actually do more harm than good. And anyway, all the other scholars having the same experience said we were communicating, we said we really need to provide a counter narrative, at least to say, you know, if you are curious, then this is what you might look for as um, ingredients of effective instruction in mathematics and at least do a content analysis. Does it align with whatever tactic is being promoted to you? That counter narrative has not existed. The people who have run the narrative for so long are people like the person you're talking about, whose name you didn't say, and I won't either, but we know who we're, I know who you're talking about. <laughs> yeah. Um, is it a coincidence that it's um, similar kind of idea to the science of, of reading or did you take inspiration from the, the, the people oh, we that totally stole yeah. their we stole their thunder 100% their momentum I hope it takes off the same time I mean because you know here's the thing like I'm a I really a, an MTSS RTI improved system proficiency person I understand data I understand methodology. I actually do understand math as a researcher, um, but I, I became somebody who built a math tool using these tenets of effective instruction, science-based instruction, um, because I couldn't buy one and I needed to solve this math problem in a district. And so I began to build this. Um, and I believe that anything that, that you say to a teacher, this is a good idea, you should be able to spell it out you know, like a protocol. This is what it would look like transparently. These are the results you can expect. Here, here's how we might study this to see if it works in your setting kind of thing. Um, so 
the science of reading was an interesting initiative because a lot of people in my world, school psychology especially, kind of like pulled back a little bit at the beginning. We were sort of puzzled, like, what is this demand for more screening and reading? Yeah. Like, who are these people who want more dyslexia screening? I mean, the problem is children have been over-identified, right? Yeah. And yeah. historically, and by the way, we're already screening kids like a million times a year in reading. But what most of us have come to understand is that the real power of that movement is that this largely group of parents who were um, dismayed to find that their children maybe did have a learning disability in reading eventually that actually might have been prevented had only they received what we now know very clearly and have known for many years is evidence-based instruction in reading. And instead, those children were subjected to instructional approaches that if, if you require good instruction to learn to read, you were not going to learn to read. And it was predictable and knowable all along. But much like the math world, you had leaders at the table who said, well, I don't agree with that. That is, I don't believe in that approach. I'm going to use this approach instead. And what I love about these parents is that so many of them made this movement, even when it was too late to prevent the problem in their own child. Isn't that yeah. interesting? Yeah. What a gift they gave the world. But what they shined a light on wasn't about needing more screening. They got that wrong, okay? They really did. But what they shined a light on was the fact that you have all these children subjected to poor instruction with knowably, should be anticipated, predictable, poor outcomes that yeah. could have been prevented had they gotten effective instruction. So we absolutely tried to just say, okay, well, really, there ought to be like a general movement called the science of instruction, period. Yes, yes, yeah. there should. Um, so I, I'll get into some of these specifics then. Um, we'll just maybe pick off a couple of them that the, the Science of Math website discusses, and they're, they're issues that are perennial issues in maths education. Anyone involved in uh, talking and thinking about maths education will be familiar with them. So um, the relationship between procedural fluency and conceptual understanding, what's, what's the debate there and, and what's, what does the science show? Gosh, for heaven's sakes. I mean, it's like it's settled. It's old news, you know, and, and it's so funny because you get into the, I often get into these Twitter debates with people <laughs> from the other side. And, and it's so funny because, you know, you will really sort of say in a very measured way that both are important. And when you build one, you get some in the other and vice versa. And so you really want to deliver both types of instruction in tandem, um, interleaved in concert, I, I say all these things all the time. And then they say, so you're saying only procedural fluency matters. Yeah. <laughs> you go, no, that's really not, that's not what the data say. That's not what people like me say to do. So I think the idea is, you know, a million years ago, like when I was in school, there really was sort of algorithm only instruction. Yeah. And teachers would teach math in ways that really they were just teaching the algorithm, but without any kind of unpacking to say, this is what this means, right? So like, I'm, I can remember a teacher saying, you know, you go next door and you knock on the neighbor's door and you ask to borrow a 10. And I mean, it's yeah. all enormously confusing because you know, you're not gonna give it back, right? So yeah. it's a stupid term. <laughs> yeah. And anyway, it, it was like a trick and it felt like a trick. Yeah. And when you mastered it and passed the test and moved on, the risk was that you would forget the trick, which you know most of us did, 
and you didn't have a way to reason your way back to it because you weren't really thinking about a quantity and its place value yeah. kind of implications, right? So that was where that good piece of that came from, that yeah. people really desired to do better than just algorithm-only instruction. But then the pendulum went like way over here, right? Yeah. So there's this idea that you can establish this thing called conceptual understanding that's not well-defined and that you need to do that before you can ever introduce any kind of procedural problem yeah. solving. And it is so wrong. And it, you know, so I'll start with John Starr's fine work, which I'm sure you've read yes. that wonderful paper. And, and he really makes the case that this has been poorly portrayed as a dichotomy. The adding it up report in 2001 very clearly said it's a bogus dichotomy. Um, then the National Math Panel in the US 2008, same thing. And then you had all of um, Bethany Riddle Johnson's work and her colleagues, lots of them independent, many, many, many replications looking at this, how, what is the relationship of conceptual understanding to procedural fluency? And even last year, big uh, um, RCT by Rohrer, was it Rohrer, I think it was, and colleagues, I believe, I think it was 2020, 20, maybe 2021. And anyway, they all find the same thing, that it's really important that children be exposed to the procedural skill solving part and that they have practice with the algorithm and they understand how and why the algorithm works and that you teach in ways that they do actually work with the standard algorithm from the very beginning, even on day one. You might also use a number line or manipulatives or, um, you know, an, an array. You know, you can you can use other tactics to support and you should use other tactics to support conceptual understanding, but you need to do both every day in concert. And that's 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 my understanding of the research. The other thing I think that gets compounded is uh, to Max is even worse is when people insist that conceptual understanding must come from uh, you know, figuring something out for yourself. That there's no way that something can be explained, and that the the person listening to the explanation can, as a result, develop the conceptual understanding. They have to somehow figure that bit out for themselves. Um, right. And when you put that before the teaching of any procedural knowledge, you're creating a big inefficiency in the whole process. That's right. I mean, anything that you can define, you can teach. Yeah. So, you know, you can define, okay, conceptual understanding for, you know, uh, multi-digit multiplication is understanding that that is a countable quantity that can be solved as repeated addition. No matter how big the number, how, how you know, um, great the quantities are, right? Yeah. Um, so 21 sets of 57 can be counted. You could map yeah. it on a number line. You can estimate it. You can have a sense of that, or you can multiply. Multiplying becomes a more efficient way to solve it. Yeah. And you can use, you know, expanded notation to understand how to get the um, multiplied result. And that all builds conceptual understanding. So ways to test that out. You can say, you can have children, we do this in our protocols that, you know, 20 times 57 is, is less than or greater than, you know, 21 times 57. And they choose and you say, how much less than or greater than? How, and can you, how much would you have to add to this quantity to make these quantities equivalent? And that is demonstrating conceptual understanding, yeah, right? But it's doing it with explicit instruction. 
Yeah, absolutely. There's quite a few of these uh, discussions on the Science of Math website, which I would encourage any listeners to go and have a look at. Um, there's stuff on growth mindset, inquiry versus explicit productive struggle that we've talked about, algorithms, executive function interventions, executive function relationships. But um, one thing I, I would like to talk to you about um, is uh, this idea um, and maybe you can come back at some point. We can talk about all the others. It would be great. But um, the idea that timed tests cause math anxiety, we've touched on that a little bit. But what's the actual uh, evidence around that? And, and, and what's that look like? Yeah, this is very interesting, okay? Because this, again, it's like one of these myths. It's a modern math myth, and people buy into it. And I think most of us can instantly, you know, if you're in a cocktail party, you instantly talk about this with people who are not in education. They flash back to when they learned their times tables. <laughs> they probably were poorly taught, and they were put under pressure and some, some type of timed arrangement, and it made them feel anxious, right? And, and so I have, a, I have a slide I use all the time, um, high-quality fluent building is not your mama's it's not your mama's drill and kill yeah because it's it's a high quality fluency building instruction really has specific components and active ingredients and it does not look like a drill and kill it just doesn't and so i think the problem is this this myth resonates with people because of their own kind of personal experience about it okay but Actually, it turns out that there's very little research data on this particular topic, especially with children. Like Robin Cotting is my new kind of go-to expert for this, and she's a good friend and colleague, and we publish work together, we do research together, but she's really becoming expert in this. She surpassed me, so I would say, you know, she's a great person to talk to about this, um, but as I understand it, there's, a, you know, maybe like about six studies that have, have included school age children that ever even looked at this topic. And three of the studies roughly found positive effects for timing. <laughs> so, <laughs> you know, and the other three were sort of, you know, equivocal, you know. Yeah. So the real takeaway here is, you know, just to step back kind of logically and say, all right, when you tell a teacher that timing a child will make the child anxious, then the teacher will say, okay, I don't want to make children anxious. So let me just avoid ever yeah. providing kind of timing constraints on this child. The problem with that is that we know that when you time a child, first of all, you get much better assessment information. Yeah. So once you get 100% accurate with a kid, you can have two kids who are both 100% accurate. They, they look the same. The metric says they are the same. But if one child is sort of halting and has to draw hash marks or find a known and count their way up, but the other child can answer it automatically, can solve it three or four different ways, can explain to their buddy how they solved it. The second kid is obviously more proficient, but yeah. in terms of 100% accurate, they look the same. Okay, so the way you detect the added proficiency is to give them both both a time limit. This is how the ACT works in the United yeah. States, right? And for the same amount of time, the second kid will complete many, many more problems. So you get this gain in what you can measure in terms of added learning that you really cannot capture with accuracy alone. It turns out I'm writing a paper right now with a guy named Ben Solomon, and we're looking at accuracy versus fluency as a, as a metric for educational decision making, and it holds across content areas and difficulty types of um, tasks, that accuracy is just a crummy metric. It yeah. is. It's not to say it's not an important instructional target and that we should, we I, I absolutely should, should focus on establishing accurate responding. But as a metric, it's terrible. It's got all kinds of measurement 
ceilings around it and technical reasons that it becomes highly unreliable and unstable, especially when a skill is very new to a child and their rate of responding might be very, very low. Yeah. So, so anyway, back to the timing thing, that's the first piece is the assessment piece. The second piece is when you say to a, when a teacher says, okay, I'm not going to time a child, that is also a very important um, instructional tactic, right? So this idea of like, if you're trying to become a more proficient runner or, um, you know, kind of many skills that you might learn, doing it rapidly is a sign of ease. And so as children become any, as learners become more proficient in whatever they're mastering, what you're really saying is their work is becoming less effortful and it takes less cognitive energy and attention to to do it so they can think about what they're doing. So much like in reading, when children can read with a certain level of ease, so a high level of oral reading fluency, what that really means is they can be making predictions about what might be coming next. They can be thinking about the vocabulary that they're reading, ideas, takeaway ideas from their, from their reading. The same process happens in math. The same process happens in playing the piano. If you're very, very, very fluent with your scales, then you can sit down and create and you can actually enjoy what you're doing. There's a guy named Kent Johnson who says fluency is what you do when no one's looking. Well, you cannot build fluency in the absence of times trials. Okay. So yeah. then here's the third piece teachers need to understand. If you worry that you might cause anxiety to a child, which we don't want to do, then here's the, here's the other thing you must know. The way you mitigate anxiety, especially in math, this is, is according to the evidence, you have to provide exposure. You can't, you can't simply avoid timing and think that any anxiety around timing is going to go away. It's actually going to get worse, right? And the reason it's going to get worse in math is because we know that weak skill proficiency is tied to anxiety in math and either, you know, any kind of timing, any kind of anxiety period. So weak skill, children with weak skill have more anxiety. Children who have more anxiety have weak skill. So it's this bi-directional thing. And if you want to interrupt that as a teacher, what you need to do is provide high quality, supportive opportunities for timed performance, low stakes, you don't like your score, we'll throw it away and do it again. Not going to give you a grade on it. Opportunity, all you're trying to do is beat your score from the day before. So you you lower the stakes of this yes. experience, right? And provide that exposure along with that success because any child who got three right yesterday should get four right today. Yeah. And we're the adults and we set the tone. And if we're not projecting anxiety onto the kids and 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 saying, oh, this is all oh, you've got to, if we, if we, calm it all down and say look it doesn't matter and you can throw it away and those are the sort of tactics that seem reasonable to mitigate the effects of kids maybe getting a little bit concerned so yeah yeah. and you know isn't the world kind of an anxious place anyway yeah and aren't schools kind of designed really to make things more anxious I mean good grief my my I have a senior this year who his every day his his schedule I have a freshman too every every single day their schedule is different yeah. Their course sequence is different every yeah. single day. Gosh. And right. And they have these weird little like two days a week. They have longer periods than they do the other days of the week. So like uh, to me, I would be, I would have an ulcer. Look, Amanda, I've, I've really appreciated uh, your time today. Um, so I'm going to flip to my, my last question. And it's one I ask a lot. I'm going to zoom out a little bit. Now, obviously, 
um, you're working on your initiatives um, and trying to improve maths education. But what what are do you think um, some of the solutions? What are the what are the ways that we can move to a more evidence based approach to uh, maths education in the US more widely? Because we often take our cues from the US. What apart from the science of maths initiative, what else can we do? Well, I mean, I do. I mean, I don't expect the science and math to really change the world. I hope it will. I hope it does. <laughs> I hope what we need are, you know, we need a, a Hanford. We need parents who notice that their children, if only they had received the right type of instruction, they would be thriving in math, you know, because, you know, your performance in math is really what determines your likelihood of being admitted to and successfully completing post-secondary education. And that is highly related to your, your income and life and other opportunities. So it's really important work. And I think, um, I think it's probably going to take uh, years and it's going to take some pressure on universities to, um, encourage math education departments to provide training in tactics that have some scientific basis to support that they can work for students. And I think I think it's going to take people pushing back on some of the math ed um, leaders. That's the purpose of the science of math group really is, you know, we are all scholars who don't necessarily agree on everything. We don't, yeah. we all, but we all are very committed to you know, evidence and the mission is to help children learn better, period. So not to just create what we think are cool lessons or that sort of thing. And so what we what I think is is um, is important maybe is, is to push and create a little tension that parents have a right to ask for that for their children. Teachers have a right to be equipped in, in the tactics that are shown to work. And honestly, we should be asking the leaders at state departments in the U.S., to justify what they promote. Absolutely. There's an awful lot of systems that are promoting things that just don't work, like the, the state that I went to, and they said you can't even talk about basically explicit instruction. Yeah, so we need, yeah, so we need something similar to um, the kind of conversation that's been sparked by, as you say, Emily Hanford around reading. Yeah, I, right. I, I think I'd agree with you on that. I think that's probably where we need to go. And I think we're, we're both trying to um, get that conversation going as best we can. Yeah. And I think maybe just saying to, to teachers, you know, the effect begins and ends with you. Yeah. And you've got a year with a kid. So you have an opportunity to establish the understanding or not. So if, if you think some wonderful tactic is something you want to use, study it with your own children. Make that your own experiment in your classroom and make sure that they're growing. And if they're not, be willing to add other things in. Absolutely. Um, Amanda van der Hayden, thank you so much for your time today. And uh, maybe we'll speak again at some point in the future. I hope so. Yeah, it was fun. Thanks.